Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to Grace Life. Would you help me welcome all of our first-time guests, both here in the room as well as online? So glad to have you with us. Man, how many of you enjoyed worship? Wasn't that anointed? Come on, that was amazing, wasn't it? Woo! Tell you what, I mean, I, I joked last week how much I wish they'd get off the stage so I can preach, but this week was not one of them. I was like, y'all can just, y'all keep going. Y'all just stay on up there. Hey, uh, before we go any further, I need to talk to you about something that I only talk to you about, second service. Who guesses what I'm about to talk to you about? Look around the room. It is crowded. It is crowded, crowded, crowded. Now, look, here's the deal. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the church business. Have you ever been to a Home Depot on a Saturday? You ever been to a Home Depot on a Tuesday night? Not the same. Okay, here's what you need to know about the church business. The closest service to 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is not the same as any other service. We could do 20 services a week. This will always be the most crowded one. And so we've been talking about some things that we, we could use your help on. First of all, for those of you that you don't really care what time you go, could you sleep a little later? I'm asking for a sacrifice there. Sleep a little later. Go to brunch instead of lunch. We have a service at noon, and there are a few more seats for that. Some of you, maybe you could uh, serve during this service, uh, worship during the first service, or serve during this one and worship during the third one. And so there are so many different ways that you can go about that. Look, here's the, the simple truth. Last week we had six people make Jesus their king and 15 families visit for the first time. That's awesome. The only reason I didn't clap along with you is because I wasn't trying to celebrate one week. That's normal. We have five, six, seven, eight people making Jesus their king every weekend, usually in this service, because it is where most of the guests are coming. Those 15 families that we average every weekend visiting Grace Life for the first time are mostly in this service. And so, look, here's what also happens in the church world. When guests come into a service like this, by the way, we're so glad to have you here with us today if you're here for the first time. But when they come into a service like this, you know, they're... There's an unwritten thing that goes through their head, and that is there's no place for me here. You see, I love crowds because I'm on stage. Comedians love crowds when they're on stage. Rock stars love crowds when they're on stage. You love crowds as long as you have a seat because it means you're a part of something cool. But guests look at a crowd and say there's no place for me here. First of all, I want to make sure you know we have four services. This is the most crowded one. We have plenty of seats at lots of other times. If you're a guest, there is room for you. More importantly, this is only part of what we do. Here at Grace Life, we believe there is more to church than Sundays. Can I get an amen on that? We are a spiritual family doing life together and accomplishing a mission Jesus gave us. What that means is there is room for you in our life groups. There is room for you to discover your gifts and use those to make a difference in the kingdom. There is room for you to reach this city. There is room for you. Please do not let this crowd communicate to you that there is not room for you. But for those of you that are not guests and those of you that can maybe go at another time, would you help make room for those who uh, are going to visit at this time because it's what they do. It's like Home Depot on a Saturday. We, we can never change that, so let's see what we can do. Anybody with me on that one? So glad to have you here. Don't want to make anybody feel bad for what time you come, but think about brunch, sleeping later. It'll be great. There you go. All right, everybody, enough on that one. Let's get into our series because I am excited to preach our message today. We are in a series, as I think you can tell around me, it's called Closer, and it has a very, very simple premise, and that is how can we get closer to Jesus. We could all stand to be a little closer to Jesus, right? Okay, watch out. If you don't agree with that one, lightning's on your way. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. We're going to have fun today, though. Actually, we're uh, each week looking at a little uh, thing that we can do to take one 
step closer each week. We started out with where Jesus started. He called some people to follow him. So we're looking at the idea of follow me. In part one, again, if you missed any of these, it's online or on our app. But in part one, we looked at the idea, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? We say those words, what does it really mean? And once we figure that out, then we have to answer the question, can I follow Jesus more closely than I do? Part two, we looked at something Jesus said, one of the most famous sayings he ever gave out of the greatest sermon ever given when he said, seek first the kingdom of God. You know, just a moment ago, we were singing, all hell, King Jesus. Here's the truth. You cannot separate a king from his kingdom. And so if we want to get closer to the king, what we need to do is see the kingdom come into our lives. Today, we're going to talk about Jesus saying, trust me. Woo, it's going to be fun, y'all. Trust me. Here's the truth. We all trust things all the time without even thinking about it. I was thinking about, you know, what can I tell you about me to kind of help you understand the, the dilemma we have with what we trust and how we trust? And I, I thought about this one and, uh, that actually is a great illustration of this. I trust airplanes and pilots. I get on airplanes a lot. Um, I, I fly a lot in between Sundays and Thursdays. Believe it or not, pastors and NFL coaches do other things the rest of the week. And uh, a lot of times I'm either at conferences, different ministry opportunities around the world. I spend a lot of time on an airplane and I realize I never worry about the outcome. I never do. Now look, I would love to tell you that I just trust God every time I get on an airplane. I mean, after all, right? If it's my time to go, it's my time to go. I trust God, nothing about it, right? Everybody, if it's my time to go, it's your time to go. Anybody with me on that one? But how many of you, I just don't want to be there when it's the pilot's time to go. Come on, somebody with me. There you go. But the reason I'm telling you that story is because I realized I don't actually trust God when I get on an airplane. I'd love to tell you I did. But as I was thinking about the story and the way I was going to tell it to you, I realized I trust the math. I trust the odds. Planes and pilots do exactly what they are supposed to do millions of times a year with almost no exception. Here's the truth that I realized. If planes crashed nine out of 10 times and I had to trust God to be on the one out of 10, I'd be taking a lot more road trips. Come on, somebody with me here today? And that's when I realized I'd, I trust the math. I trust the odds. I don't actually trust God. Now, before any of you judge me, let me just ask, how many of you enjoy being in situations where you have absolutely no control? And the only one you can trust is a God you can't control. Come on. Who's looking forward to going to the doctor to hear him look at you and say, yep, I got no answer. You'll have to pray. None of us ever want to hear that answer. We go to the, uh, the doctor expecting and planning and hoping. He's going to say, oh, psh, yep, that's normal. See it all the time. Got a pill for that. You'll be great by tomorrow. That's what we want to hear. But what we're going to learn from Jesus today is a very, very simple truth. If you want to be close to someone, you're going to have to trust them when it matters most. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be right at the very beginning of that chapter. Don't worry, it'll be on the screen right here as well. Let's set the stage. Jesus has just finished giving another teaching to a multitude. Some of these sayings that he gave were similar to things that he had said in Sermon on the Mount because they were good points. And when he would run into a new multitude, he would share some of those same truths with them. So at the beginning of chapter 7, it says, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And I'm just going to stop for a moment and give a shameless plug. 
Capernaum is gorgeous, beautiful little city right on the Sea of Galilee, great ruins of temples that would have been there when Jesus was there, and, and uh, even being able to see Peter's house where Jesus went and healed his mom. I'm going to tell you, your Bible comes to life if you ever go to these places. And so when we take a trip to Israel, we're getting ready to do that in May. It's already full, but we're planning one for about 18 to 24 months out. If you ever get a chance to go, you need to go. Your faith will be changed. Your Bible will come to life. It ain't cheap. So start saving now, but you should go to Israel when you get a chance. All right, let's get back to our story. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. For this story to make sense, I want to make sure everybody here understands the characters in the story. So far, we've got two important people. The first one is a centurion. And the centurion is a Roman officer who is in charge of approximately 100 soldiers. We talked in part two a little bit about how the Roman Empire was ruling the known world. That included Israel and included God's people. They had taken over, they had conquered. And the way that they would rule a conquered world is they would leave behind a certain amount of soldiers. And so we've got a centurion and all of his soldiers who is going to try to keep peace in this region of Israel. And so then we have the elders of the Jews. These were kind of like a town council. They were the representatives that would have to coordinate and work alongside of the centurion. Their job was to deal with the religious decisions and matters and judge and some, some dis complaints and disputes that maybe the, the Jews would have. And in this case, what we're about to see is that these people actually got along. We talked last week how most often that didn't happen. As we get through the story, we're going to understand why this one is slightly different. But there was a partnership between the elders of the Jews and the centurion to say, hey, if, if we could work together, this will be easier. My soldiers won't have to kill you and you guys will have a better standard of living. Now, if the story stopped right here. If the story stopped right here, we would all assume that this centurion is absolutely an entitled jerk. He needs something from Jesus, and he won't even get off the couch to go himself. So he sends the elders of the Jews, go and ask for this for me. But if we watch and read in the story, we're going to discover he is anything but an entitled jerk. So the elders of the Jews are off to do an errand. It says, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy. He is worthy, Jesus. You need to do this for him, Jesus, because he's special. He's worthy. Let me tell you what he does. He, first of all, he loves our nation, and that's so rare for a Roman soldier. I mean, these guys are oppressive. Jesus, are you paying attention? He loves our nation. He loves the people of God. He's taking care of us, and he even used his funds. Somehow, he built the synagogue for us to worship you. So, Jesus, you should answer his prayer because he is worthy. Last week, we did talk about how the Jews and the Israelites, um, the, uh, the Jews, Israelites, and the, the Romans, they wouldn't get along. But we see a very significantly different story here. And it's not that we were wrong last week. It's because sometimes people are different. On more than one point, we're going to see how this centurion is different. Right now, we've already noticed that one of the things we need to learn is that Romans weren't always Roman. What I mean by that is Romans, as they conquered the world, they would take slaves and conscript people to be in their armies. So there's a really good chance this Roman centurion was actually not Roman, but he actually was from another nation that had also been conquered, and so he had empathy for these people he's supposed to rule over. And he's thinking, if I rule over them well, then maybe whoever's ruling over my family will rule over them well. 
You know, you also do come across people sometimes that they just actually have a good heart. Maybe something has happened, God's worked in them already. Matter of fact, it seems like he's got a love for God's people here. And so there is a positive relationship between them. But what we need to not miss for you and me today, that was a fun history lesson, but what matters to you and me today, because we share the opinion of these elders of the Jews when we go to God. They were saying, you need to do this for him because he is worthy. Look at all the good stuff he did. He paid for the church. He did all this kind of stuff. He works hard. He's on the serve team. He's out in the parking lot when it rains, man. He even pays for the building. Man, come on, you need to do this for him. And many of us come to God with the approach, well, look what I've done for you, God. And I'll prove it to you because many of us also never go to God because we feel bad and think we haven't done enough. We're actually going to see the centurion has a completely different perspective because Jesus says, okay, let's go. Let's pick up the story. And Jesus went with them. But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, whoa, 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 stop, Jesus. Lord, do not trouble yourself. For actually, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I could imagine at this moment, the list is running through his mind. I mean, he is a Roman centurion. That means he's lived a long time in the Roman army. He has risen through the ranks in the Roman army. That means he's probably done some very evil things for the name of Rome. He's probably thinking... Just like you may think of all the things you've looked at on the internet or all the things you've done on a Friday night. It's running through your head. Whoa, 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 Jesus, just no, 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 look, don't come. Don't come under my roof. I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy. Now, here's the thing. He goes on, if you'll just say the word, let my servant be healed. And it looks very humble. The truth is, I don't know if it's humility just yet. We'll find that out in just a moment. Some of us do the same thing, and we don't know if it's humility when we do it. It may look like humility. Hey, Jesus, I'm not worthy. But you know what looks like humility sometimes is just an incredible lack of belief in ourselves. Accusation, the spirit of accusation, it's not just the devil brings it. Then we start repeating it. We look in the mirror. that You're not good enough. See, the truth is many of us have just been beaten down by the whispers of the enemy in our lives. Now, there are proud people. There are people who just, they have no humility. They're just proud. Now, none of those are the people you see when you look in the mirror. So that's okay. Let's talk about them today. We all know somebody who's just proud. And so it's great to look at somebody who seems to have the humility to say, whoa, 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 I'm not worthy. And I I do think there's humility on his part because the story's going to prove it out. But what happens if it's not actual humility, what we do when we're beat down by the enemy is we do exactly the same response, but kind of for a different reason. Whoa, whoa, I'm not going to, I never presumed to come to you. See, he tells us now why he was not an entitled jerk to send the elders of the Jews. He thought they were worthy to go to Jesus, and he wasn't. But us today, because we we don't love ourselves, because we listen to the accusations of the enemy, we won't go to God when we need him. We hide and say, oh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm too unworthy, and we simply don't come to him. I can't tell you how much, as a pastor, I hear people say things like, well, you know, I... Look, that's not a big enough deal to God. I'm not going to ask God to do that for me. I mean, first of all, I don't think God even knows me. There's 8 billion people on the planet, and I'm just not special enough. I'm not important enough. I, you know, I don't know if he even knows my name. So many people I hear that from. If we were to just look at the size of the crowd today, I'm going to tell you that some of you really need to get this into your heart today. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you right now. Here's what we need to understand. We do not come to God because we are worthy, important, or have the biggest problems. God does not respond to you because you are worthy, important, 
or have the biggest problems. Are you all hearing me? We go to God because he's our loving father. And he responds to you because he's good. Period. End of discussion. We go to God because he's our father. He responds to us because he's good. And we need to understand that. Let's keep going, though. See, here's what we need to understand. We had every, we have today every reason to go to Jesus. This centurion wasn't like us at all. He had no reason. I need you to understand the centurion was about the last person ever who would go to Jesus. You see, first of all, he's not Jewish. He's not one of them. And on top of that, he's a Roman centurion. That means he represents the empire of Rome. And he has to do it in a way that is worthy of his rank and his uniform. And that means that he has got to represent strength, power. And what he actually does is say, I've got no answer. I need help. And what looks like humility to you and me would have looked like humiliation to every person around him. Here is this great Roman leader, this conqueror, this centurion, and he's actually going to these people he's supposed to rule over. It is one thing to ask the people you rule over to sweep your floors. It is another thing to ask the people you rule over to do a favor for you because you can't do it. Every soldier watching would have lost faith in him. Are you serious? Our leader is bowing down, asking them to go talk to that guy. Don't they know that guy? That guy's just some washed up Jewish rabbi. See, here's what you got to understand about Jesus. They called him rabbi, but, but that's only because his, his sermons seemed to be like really smart and make a lot of sense. To be a rabbi, you actually had to have training. And they would say, wait a minute, how did he get all of this, this learning? How does he know so much? Because he's never been to school. He actually was not an, a trained rabbi. Trained rabbis would have gone to school, and then they would take money from the people they trained, their disciples. It would be kind of how they made their living. And Jesus, he didn't fit any of that. Some people called him a rabbi because he was such a good teacher, but he had never had any training. And this gang of misfits that was following him was just a bunch of fishermen that apparently weren't even very good at it. If you've ever read the stories, Jesus constantly had to say, hey, put your net on the other side of the boat. Those empty nets, you fishermen ain't catching no fish. Hey, other side. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And here is a Roman centurion who could sentence to death hundreds is bowing down before some Jewish town council saying, hey, would you please go do a favor for me? Would you talk to that weird rabbi and his bunch of misfits? He had to be the last one that would come to Jesus. But do you know why he did? Because he was desperate. Do you know why he trusted Jesus? Because he was desperate. Because he couldn't heal his servant. He had reached his end. There was nothing there. And one thing that we cannot miss for you and me today as we look at the world around us, we are surrounded by people who are at their own end. The least likely people to come to Jesus so we never talk to them. I mean, come on, just think about it right now. Everybody think about either where you work or your neighborhood or your family reunion. And we've always got somebody in our mind. If I have to invite somebody to church, it'll be that person. And just do this with me. Think of it. If there's somebody I know that's the least likely to go to church, I'm never inviting them. They'll never take my invitation. Come on, let's be honest. Don't we all have that person? We know somebody who is the least likely person to come to Jesus, so we never invite them. Do you realize we might be overlooking the very people that need him the most? And that would be the most likely to come to him. Let's not let that be lost. But now let me show you the real reason that he came to Jesus. Yes, he was desperate. Yes, he was at his own end. 
but there was actually a greater reason. He said to Jesus, through his messengers, but just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. I know what it's like to be under authority, Jesus. So look, just if you so choose, use your authority. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He marveled at him. He was amazed. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. We need to make sure we understand the significance of what Jesus just did. The entire crowd following him was Jewish in Israel. They were Israelites. And he actually was going to a pagan, a Roman, not one of God's people, a Gentile. We've used all those words in the series. And he turned around and looked at them and said, not even among any of you. All of you people who have spent centuries searching the scriptures and centuries in the synagogue and the centuries waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for God to move in your midst, he's here and you don't see it. You don't even recognize me. And that pagan over there does. He recognizes that I have authority over this realm because I'm not just a rabbi. I'm not just some prophet that you think is reincarnated. I'm the son of God and you don't even see me. But he does. You see, he trusted Jesus to be more than a rabbi. People come to me with a tough situation sometimes as a pastor, and they'll say, man, I, I, I just wish that, you know, we could do something or whatever and, and ask me to pray for them. And I just look at them, and after they tell me their story, I say, I'm so sorry you're going through that. If I could do something, I would. Let me pray for you. Because I can't do anything. But Jesus can. And he knew it. He knew Jesus had absolute ability to do anything that he brought before him. He recognized Jesus was different. And that's what made Jesus amazed. Wait a minute, how does this guy see who I am? How does this guy see what I can do and nobody else can? Do you know Jesus was amazed only twice in Scripture? What that means for you and me today is that we should actually pay attention to the centurion. Because if he can amaze Jesus, we can learn something from him. So how did the story end? Very simply, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. All right, so why don't we apply what I just said? This man amazed Jesus because he actually had just done two things, two things that we need to evaluate in our own life. The first one is that he actually trusted Jesus' decisions. Did you realize he didn't even go? He never talked to Jesus in person. He just sent a messenger and said, Jesus, this is what I need. I trust your decision. Anybody in here going to do business that way? Let me tell you, if you're a good businessman, you're never going to do business that way. Like, I'm a, a little bit of a, a, a control freak, and I'm a little bit of an overcomer. I'm slightly uh, competitive. Matter of fact, I, I think I'm one of the two most competitive people here in Grace Life. Uh, we have an elder's wife named Aday. Anybody knows Aday, don't ever play a game with her or me unless you're on our side, because we're going to win. I don't even have to be good at the game. Like if we play basketball, I'm really bad at it, but I can do all of the stuff to make sure somebody else misses a shot or something. I mean, I'll do whatever it is. I might be a pastor up here, but out there, I'm tripping you. That's whatever it takes, man, you know? Because look, here's the deal. I'm a conqueror. It is my personality. God put it in, in front of me, inside of me. It's who I am. If you come to me and say that can't be done, it is now my life goal. It's, it's what I'm going to do. And so when I am determined I need to take this course of action and I need this thing, if I need my servant healed, I'm going. 
I'm not sending a messenger to, to, to do something on my behalf. No, 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 I'm going also because, see, I talk for a living. I talk for a living because I'm at least halfway decent at it, or hopefully I am. And so the point to that is I'm going to go and talk to Jesus because I'm going to talk him into my case. And here's a little secret also about preachers on a Sunday morning. When, when we finally feel like our words have made our point and you begin to nod your head with us and we feel like we've won our case, I move on to something else. But I'm going to keep talking until I feel like you're finally with me. So if you want shorter sermons, learn to nod and smile. Okay, so... Because I'm going to control the situation. I'm not going to trust your decision. I'm going to trust my ability to talk you into it. He trusted Jesus' decision, not his ability to talk him into it. Let me ask you, how do you pray? You should start out, good morning, God. And after you praise God, you worship him, you glorify him, that should always come first. Make much of God before you make much of you. But when you do need to ask God for things, which you should, He's your father in heaven. Do you do it like this? Hey, God, here's my request, but I trust your decision. That's less than three seconds. You know how we pray when we've got a request? Oh, good morning, God. Hey, so, you know, I've got this job interview today. You know, I really love that job. And hey, hey, by the way, God, you know, you need to know that if you would give me this job, it'd be really good for you. Man, I'll tell you what. I mean, first of all, it's so much closer to home. So I'm going to be able to spend more time with my kids and my wife. And, and I'll be able to witness to my neighbor more when he's outside because it's likely that I'll cross paths with him, you know, because my work schedule will be closer to that. And hey, you know, there's a lot of people at that office that don't go to church. So I'll be able to invite them to church. And there's a little bit of a raise so I can give more money to the youth group. It's going to be great, God. That's why you should really... We spend all of our time not trusting God's decision, but trusting our ability to talk him into it. Second thing that the centurion did we can learn from, first he trusted his decision. Second of all, he trusted his words. You see, the reason that he went to Jesus and said, but just say the word, it's because he knew if Jesus said he would do it, he would do it. We don't have that same kind of trust because we all know well-intentioned people they mean well, they promise, and they don't come through. And we put that on God, but the reality is God's nothing like that. Whatever Jesus says he will do, he will do because he can. He has authority over the natural realm, and he is the truth, the embodiment of it. He can't lie. Whatever he says he'll do, he has to do because he cannot lie, and he will do because he's capable to do something you and I don't have the ability to do. We have lots of, I wish I could do that for you, but Jesus can do it. And the centurion recognized he can and he will. If you just say the word, my servants will turn around and come home. That's trust. That's trust. So what does this mean for us today? Well, you probably saw it coming. It's a similar sentence we're saying every time. If you want to be close to Jesus, we'll have to trust him. To be closer to Jesus, we'll have to trust him. So, since the centurion, centurion amazed Jesus, let's ask how we're doing in the same two things. First of all, ask yourself, do I trust God's decision? And some of you might have caught the switch. We're talking about getting closer to Jesus, and I just inserted the word God. First of all, that's very intentional. Because what we need to understand is Jesus is God, the Father is God. And a lot of Christians today see them differently even though they are one. A lot of people today see Jesus as the really nice one who's sweet, talks about love, was willing to die for me. 
but we see the father as the angry one with lightning bolts in his hand up in heaven waiting to strike you down. As a pastor, I hear that all the time. So many of us see things that way, but here's what you have to understand. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. The father and I are one. And it doesn't do any good to ask me for anything and think I'm going to be nicer about it because I'm only going to do what my father in heaven does. You see, before you are here today thinking that God is ready and waiting to strike you down, you need to remember that your Father in heaven is the one who loved you so much that he said, hey, Jesus, I need you to do something for them. I need you to go die for them. It was the love in his heart, not the lightning bolts in his hand that came after you. I think one of the biggest travesties that we could have of this series, we're going to spend six weeks talking about getting closer to Jesus. One of the worst things we could do is end up wanting to be closer to Jesus but further from the Father. Trying to separate God. You can't. And so as we talk about this for a moment, I need you to just think God. Do I trust God's decisions? Jesus did. He gave us a great example, not just the centurion. Jesus gave us a great example. Before he was crucified, the night in the garden, he said, look, Daddy, what they're about to do to me is the worst thing humanity's come up with, the slowest, most painful way for a human to die. The human side of me is really not wanting to go through that. But not my will. Yours be done. But not what I want, what you decide I trust. Jesus modeled it for us. The centurion saw it. It just keeps going. Let me ask you, do you trust God to do what is best for you? What happens when God makes a decision that, that doesn't make sense to you and you don't like? Do you trust God in that moment? Let me show you what Scripture says about God doing something that's different. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, I can't stress that far, neither can you. So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Do you know one of the incredibly great marks of Christianity's maturity and experience is to be able to recognize when you don't get your way, God is up to something good. You know all of the people who just said yes and the, the heads I saw do this are the older heads in the room? Just being honest, not picking on anybody. Because it truly does take decades of experience. It takes a long time to say, God, will you please? And God didn't. God, will you please? And he did something different. God, why did you do that? And you get mad at God, but then later you... See, it takes wisdom and maturity experience. Actually, wisdom and experience develops the maturity for you to go, okay, God, I trust you. I wanted that, but I didn't get it because I recognized. I'll tell you the truth, because I, I've just always believed that when God didn't do what I wanted, if I pray and I don't get something, I automatically assumed that it was spiritual warfare and the devil was taking something from me. And again, because I told you I've got a conqueror kind of personality, I would just go out and make it happen and regret it later. What I've learned over the years is my God on his throne is bigger and it's not always spiritual warfare. Now, there is a devil and there is spiritual warfare, but that is a long sermon series for another day. What we need to understand right now is to trust God when he makes a decision. The second thing is, do I trust what he says? Do I trust his decisions and do I trust what he says? You know, his word is full of promises to you and me. Great things that he has planned for you and me. And it's full of declarations about his character of faithfulness. 
So let me ask you, do you trust what he says to you? Because here's the truth. He may not always do what you want, but he will always do what he has said he will do. Always. Let me tell you some things he says for you, because this is really good news for you to know. He says, for I know the plans I have for you. I've got plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans for a future and a hope to give you hope. Come on, do y'all, do y'all like when God says that? How about this one says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to all things. No matter what you're going through, God is going to make this better on the other end for the people who love God. How many people can trust God because of the things that he says about you? To be closer to Jesus, well, we're going to have to trust him. So I'm going to wrap all this up. I'm going to close with three really quick, very short truths about trust that you're going to need to acknowledge. In order to practically trust God, there are three things that you're going to have to just recognize as truth here today. The first one is this. We all trust something. Some of you would say, no, 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 Jimmy, not actually, I don't trust anybody. I got deep trust issues. That's what my therapist calls it. Like, no, no, no. we all trust something. I don't care what your therapist calls it. We all have incredible trust in some things. Anybody here with a driver's license? Come up to a bridge. Do you pull over? Do you get out? Do you crawl down the hill, wade through the water, inspecting up underneath the bridge? Do you get out your cell phone, call the DOT, asking for the latest inspection report? No, you don't. Because you trust that bridge. Any students in here, you go to class for a test and you are as happy as a lark because you actually studied and you trust your knowledge. And those of you that have no knowledge to trust, you're on your knees. Cry to God, algebra, help me, God. <laughs> How about when you go to McDonald's? Anybody have somebody else take a bite for you first and make sure you're not going to die? <laughs> do you realize hundreds of years ago, kings could not do that? Hundreds of years ago, kings would have to have a cupbearer because they always had to assume their food was poisoned. They couldn't trust the food that was given to them, even by their own servants. They had to have somebody that was willing to die. And they waited. If he didn't fall over, they could finish their Big Mac. Come on, somebody take your cupbearer to McDonald's. Anybody with me? And that's actually trust, by the way, because I worked at McDonald's as a teenager. And you put your trust in somebody you don't know and you can't see back there that you've never met. We all trust something. Actually, what we really trust most of all is ourselves our own abilities and our own control, which leads us to the second truth we're going to need to deal with. To trust God, we must overcome trusting ourselves. As long as it's all about trusting you, you're never going to trust God. By the way, that is why God lets you reach your own end. There are so many people, and it's sometimes funny as a pastor, one of the more difficult things I do, because you all notice by now, I find the weirdest things funny. One of the things I struggle with is not laughing at a time where I'm supposed to be very sympathetic. Someone comes to me and they're having their worst moment, their worst season, their worst, and they say, where is God? God has abandoned me. I'm just going through all this and I feel like God's not even there. And I want to laugh because God is in heaven looking at you going, are you kidding me? This is the closest you've ever been. You've cried out to me ever. God, why have you forsaken me? He's like, this is the first time I'm even hearing my name. You've never been this close. I had to take away your control. I had to take away your wisdom. I had to take away your abilities. And when you had no answer, suddenly you're trying to get closer to me. At a time when we think God has abandoned us and gotten the furthest away is actually when we finally start to realize he's there. 
And the third truth, trust is just talk until acted upon. Trust is just talk, just an idea. Here in the South, we say just plain talk until you do something with it. Talk is cheap, but actions are priceless. You ever heard that? Let me ask you today, how many of you would say I trust God? Okay, it's not a trick question. You should be raising your hand. Come on, come on, participate. You're in church. Okay, see, I had to actually give you permission. So in church, a bunch of us just said, I trust God. But what you need to know is that that doesn't really matter. Raising your hand in church and saying you trust God doesn't really matter. What matters is do you trust God this week? When God makes a decision, you would have made differently. What happens is this week, will you trust God to do what he says long before you ever get to see it here on earth? See, what matters is not raising your hand in church. It is how you respond when God makes decisions and God speaks, but it is not happening on the earth just yet. Talk. Trust is just talk until acted upon. So let me leave you with a really cool story about trust in action. I just learned this story uh, this year myself. It's, it's an old story, but it seems a lot of people don't know about it. So far, I haven't found anyone who knew this story before now. It's of the great blondine from the 1800s. Anybody heard of the great blondine? There you go. Didn't think so. Oh, one hand, one hand in all services so far. Well, for the rest of you, this will be fun. The great blondine actually has a French name because he's a Frenchman, but uh, I took three years of French and tried to get Google to help me pronounce it twice. I just gave up. So uh, we're just going to go with the great blondine today. But in 1858, he came to America and he was a tightrope walker and an acrobatic showman. So he came to America looking for something to do that had never been done, a great feat. And he heard about this place called Niagara Falls. No one had ever crossed it on a tightrope. Go figure. Kind of a reason no one's ever done that. So he decided he would be first. So in June of 1859, they strung the tightrope from the American side to the Canadian side. Incredible winds blowing as they always do. If you've ever been there, the mist coming up off the waterfalls, it hits everything wet. And he begins to walk from the American side to the Canadian side. Over 20,000 people had come that day, all betting he would die. I'm sure there's one or two rich guys out there that just decided they would bet the opposite, but nobody believed he could. They all actually came not to see him walk the tightrope, they came to see him crash to his death. There was even a boat, one of the tour boats that would look at the, the falls was actually right below it because they wanted the closest view of his body splashing beneath. But to everyone's surprise, he walked to the Canadian side and turned around and walked back. They wrote an article about it in the newspaper and it spread, but everyone, of course, didn't believe it because there was no YouTube of the day. No picture, no proof. And so he said, I'll do it again. All the naysayers and doubters can come and watch. So he repeatedly over the months to come would go back and forth across it time and time again. And each time he had to do something he hadn't done before to make it more special. So one of the times he was going across, he got halfway across and sat down on the rope, motioned to that boat full of people waiting to see him die to come closer. And then he lowered down a rope and tied a bottle of champagne, sat there and drank half the bottle and then gave it back, <laughs> finished his walk. 
Another time he decided to carry a camera. This is not an iPhone that fits in your pocket. This is back in the day it was a big box on a tripod. He strapped it to his back, got halfway, balanced it on the wire as he turned around and took a picture of all the people that thought he would die. He was having fun. Another time he decided to carry a small stove on his back. Got halfway, sat down, cooked an omelet. Passed it to the people on the boat beneath. True. And after doing this so many times, the real feat came in August of 1859 when he showed up in front of this crowd of tens of thousands. Everybody couldn't wait to see what his theatric would be today. And he said, how many of you believe I can carry a man on my back across Niagara Falls? And all their hands went up, I believe. And he said, can I have a volunteer? Suddenly, no one trusted him anymore. That day, he could not get a volunteer from the crowd of tens of thousands that had watched him cook omelet, take pictures, and do anything he wanted to do. Suddenly, well, trust is just talk until it's put into action. However, he actually did carry a man across successfully that day. Here's a picture of it. it really happened. But the man on his back is not someone from the crowd. The only person willing to trust him was his manager, Harry Colcord. So in light of what we're talking about today, I want to make sure no one here misses this truth. Don't let this truth be lost on you. It was the one who was closest to him that trusted him the most. And the one who trusted him the most was the one who was closest to him. So if we want to be closer to Jesus, we're going to have to trust him when it matters most. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are a good God who is worthy of trust. And today we just confess that we've put so much trust in our control and our abilities and natural things of this world that well, you're the, the greatest source of trust ever, and we struggle. So God, today we confess that to you, we repent of, of that, and we ask you, would you help us trust you? Would you help us turn to you in the moments that matter most when we have reached an end, but also to respond like that centurion? Not only are we at our end, but our faith in you is at its greatest. God, today help us to trust what you decide to know that your words will come to pass because you are good and we praise you for it. If you just stay in a place of prayer, I want to speak to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your king. The greatest act of trust we really can do is to hope in what Jesus has done for us on the day of our death because see, on the day of your death, you truly have lost all control. You see, it is an act of trust in Jesus to believe the truth that we were separated from God, but God loved you so much he sent his son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross in your place. That when he was crucified, his blood shed, his body broken, it would pay for your sins, making you right with God because you're forgiven. And the same power that raised him from the dead would be the same power that will raise you to eternal life. If you have never put this trust in Jesus, this free gift of salvation. I want to help you do this today. Wherever you are, simply say something like this to yourself and to God. 
Lord Jesus. I thank you that you died for me. And so today, I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. In my simple prayer here today, would you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom. Amen. Would everybody help me celebrate with them? Thank you.